I believe King Charles will be a really wonderful king. I think that family's devotion to service is something we should all uh, take a page out of their book. Prince Harry declined the coronation breakfast. Nobody raised an eyebrow because people proceeded according to the manners of well-bred people. I believe that the onus is on Charles to try to mediate the issues between he, William, and Harry. Charles, tend to your people and tend to your family. Welcome to special coverage from Vanity Fair's Dynasty about what happens next for the British royal family now that Charles III has been crowned. I'm Katie Nichol, Vanity Fair's royal correspondent. I'm Erin Vanderhoof, staff writer at Vanity Fair. And here on Dynasty, we analyze the interplay of power and personality as the Windsor family enters a new era under a new monarch and what this all means for the United Kingdom and its place in the world. Well, we received an array of messages from you, our listeners, about what you made of the recent events. Hello, my name is Barbara Ivory. I'm from Chicago, Illinois. When King Charles III can embrace both of his sons, with love and not tradition, and Harry. Be true to Harry as the man he chose to be and not a follower of tradition. Then he has a stab at being a real king. Wow, Barbara. Go, Barbara. It was beautiful. It was poetry. Let's listen to another voice memo. Honestly, I think it was very spiteful of Charles to call Harry to specifically beg him to come and then to see him so far back that no one could see him. It seems like her feelings is still running the show. My name is Pamela Simon. I live in La Crosse, Wisconsin. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Pamela and Barbara are definitely in the same camp there and um, feel that, you know, Harry being demoted wasn't the right thing to do. You know, listening to that really made me think a bit about your great article from earlier this week about why Prince Harry even bothered to come to the coronation at all. Your sources said that the family was pretty puzzled by his quick turnaround um, trip to the UK. Have you heard any Mm. developments since then? I did speak to my sources sort of following that weekend and just to find out really what what the feeling was, whether there was any sadness um, about Harry really not being a part at all of the celebration. Then we learned that he actually did go back to Buckingham Palace very briefly, we understand, after leaving the Abbey. Now, that would have been a perfect moment for him to have seen his father and his stepmother, to have offered his congratulations and just to have had a family moment. I was told there was a place set for him at this informal buffet lunch that took place after the official photographs had been taken and that, you know, that was cleared away when it was evident that Harry wasn't going to be around. But that certainly showed to me that there was a willingness on the part of the king and the royal family for Harry to be there. So it's very interesting, I think, to hear Barbara's point of view. And I suspect that she speaks for many people because I think when we consider our royal family and what they're meant to represent, and I've said this on the podcast before, they are meant to represent unity. We look to them not necessarily as a perfect family because no such thing exists. And they're in the papers more for the scandals, the divorces, the rifts, etc. probably, if you clock up the tabloid inches, than for anything else. Nonetheless, it is still a family and one we look to for togetherness. And I do think that Barbara is right, that many people will only see King Charles as a success and as someone to look up to if he is able to heal this rift at the heart of his own family. 
I don't know, Erin. What do you think? Do you think Harry is now just a subplot and not part of the bigger picture? Or was his sort of blink-and-you-miss-it moment actually ultimately quite damaging to the image of the royal family. You know, I think it's not a coincidence that that comment came from somebody who's an American because I think that Harry has become sort of the American royal and he's the person that we're getting a lot of coverage of. It's something that I've said in the past that I think that, you know, the palace could be doing a lot more to engage American outlets to talk about the charity work because definitely when it comes to the American interest right now, you know, the thing that people are hearing about is the divide between the the brothers and the divide between Charles and his, and, you know, his younger son. In coming to understand his daily work, you understand something different about him as a person that I think if, it's a, just a lack of understanding, I think, for Americans, honestly. Mm. Which is a problem because, you know, the monarch and the monarchy has to have that, we've talked about it, haven't we, that connection with the people. And if, if they're feeling a disconnect at the heart of, of this family, it, it, that's, not, that's not appealing. That's going to turn people off the royal family. And I think one of the greatest challenges for, for the king is, is not just keeping the Commonwealth together or keeping the U and United Kingdom. Oh, no, I think it's closer to home than that. I think it is within his own family. If we think back to the very first speech he gave as king, you know, he said that he he wished Meghan and Harry well in their new lives in America. And, uh, you know, I think we're going to be watching very closely, aren't we now, to see exactly what Harry and Meghan are going to do next, what their big philanthropic role is going to look like. And one would hope that that can exist um, alongside the work that the royals do. I was, I was speaking to an aide who'd, who'd worked with both William and Harry for many, many years, and he said to me that that actually the Sussexes are not a threat to the Wales family because they're both going to occupy very different spheres. And Meghan and Harry are going to take on the philanthropic world and I suppose the world of celebrity, which, which is very evident, in a way that William and Kate never could and absolutely don't want to. So it's going to be interesting to see how these sort of two royal couples on uh, you know, opposite sides of the Atlantic navigate their way moving forwards. But I do think uh, you know, most people agree with Barbara and want to see a reconciliation. And I, I, do, I do think the ball was in Harry's court to sort of perhaps break the ice on that. I know he was desperate to get back for his son Archie's fourth birthday. But, you know, at some point, I think we've all missed children's birthdays because of something terribly important. And actually... This the coronation is is hugely important. There's not going to be another coronation of of King Charles. That was it. And um, as I say, I think it it was it was great that Harry was there. I think it's just a great shame that it was so fleeting. Mm-hmm. I'm so glad that the coronation portraits came so soon after you know the events on Saturday. They are photos fit for a king. The official coronation photographs of King Charles III and Queen Camilla along with Britain's new slimmed-down royal family. And we saw everybody in their their mantles, their robes, kind of in action as they were moving, but it was amazing to just kind of see the sumptuousness of them when they're all posed. And I think, you know, looking at the portraits, you realize, okay, this is the future of the monarchy. But at the same time, you know, it's a lot of the people there have been serving Britain for more than 50 years and that... You know, I think that seeing that photo was a sign of just, you you know, what is really missing now that Harry and Meghan are really gone? That that I think you're right that, you know, we from the outside, it seemed pretty obvious to us that Meghan and Harry have different interests than Will and Kate insofar as there were conflicts between them from the get-go. It was just that the pair, like, sees the world very differently. 
And so it, it but you do, it, it, that to me, I think was one of the things I really did take away from the photos is just what it is, what you lose by losing Harry and Meghan. Mm. And I think his absence is keenly felt in those pictures. Mm -hmm. I mean, when you consider how much family was a part of this huge, ornate medieval ceremony, at the heart of it, it felt like a family affair. You know, had the Camilla had the Parker Bowleses right up close um, so that they could see and witness her being anointed. On the other side of the theatre in the Abbey, you had Charles's closest immediate family and then just a few rows behind the Middletons because of course they're hugely important as far as William and Kate are concerned and then you look at those official pictures and Harry's not in it and there is just a sense of of loss I think at at the heart of all of this and I did ask my contact how the king was feeling about it and, and I was told you know as a father deeply saddened because you have to remember that Charles's image for this scaled-down monarchy, which we see today, absolutely included Harry and Meghan. And I do think not having the Sussexes at the coronation um, was, yes, all right, probably more convenient in terms of optics and perhaps less of a headache for the palace. But in terms of the bigger picture, I think it's a great shame because they could have come over with their children. They they could have been there. I mean, Archie and Lilibet are now prince and princess. They should have, perhaps, I think most people feel, been at that coronation. You do wonder, given everything Harry went through as a child, whether that was a deliberate decision for him to come on his own so that he wasn't putting those children in the spotlight. Well, and I think it's hard to, you know, think about the weekend without thinking of the really wonderful photo of Megan hiking in in California over the weekend. My first thought when I saw that was like, whoa, those are broken in hiking boots. We actually, I have the same pair of hiking boots that she does. And there, she. You can tell she really gets some wear in them, and I think that there's. Yeah, I just, but oh, sorry, Erin, but who goes out in that much bling when you're hiking? That was a little, all that I bling mean, and that's, gold that's, on her wrists, right? That was slightly dressy really for funny. a hike. <laughs> that was really funny. That was great. I, but once again, I feel like it's like it's it's amazing that Megan is just this person that it's like ah, uh, Americans look at her and they're like she's just like me for real. <laughs> that was really great. I really I, that's that, that's what I would want to be doing on that day. No, no offense to church. Dynasty will be right back after a short break. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. You know, a coronation isn't just about the, the present, it is it is about the future too. So you see this dynasty in the making, you see this succession all lined up, the next two generations of kings there witnessing this moment in history and knowing it is all going to be played out again. And the palace advisors, they all absolutely know that this image of this young dynasty of Wales is, is the future and that's why they were so centre stage. And I think Saturday you get Kate, the Princess of Wales, in her 
uh, you know, the Royal Victorian Order mantle and her not a tiara, but pretty sparkly um, headpiece. She was never the star of anything over the whole weekend. But like her presence, I think, is what really brings it all together. I completely agree. She didn't steal any moments, but my goodness, didn't she look like a queen in waiting. She was just flawless and so central to the whole thing. And she has that amazing ability to be so central and yet not to upstage or to eclipse. And she's really got that down to a T. And I think, you know, with her and William, you see a great team. And, well, you know, courtiers must just be sighing a breath of relief that they are as solid as they are, that this is a partnership that works, that they've got these gorgeous, three photogenic, divine little children who are going to keep you and me, Erin, writing column inches for many, many years to come because their antics are just... They, they 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 just flow thick and fast. I mean, Louis is clearly such a little character. I'm sure he's going to be the naughty one. I think, you know, we also saw George have a confidence that I've not seen him display before. When he was up on that balcony for the fly past, you could see him chatting with the other pages, pointing up at the fly past, you know, where there was a time when George was really quite shy and, and you could see that Charlotte was much more the outgoing personality. But I really feel that George is growing into himself. He's growing into his royal role. And I think with the support of his sister by his side and now with little Louis as a side act, again, they, they've got each other and we're going to see them on that balcony many more times. I suspect the next time is going to be at Trooping the Colour in June. But, you know, we're not going to go backwards from here. This is going forwards. And of course, the challenge for William and Kate is how to juggle this ordinary, lovely, pretty low-key family life that they live in Windsor with the big central roles that they're going to play at the heart of the royal family. In a certain way, as much as emphasizing the family aspects makes it a lot more of a relatable and emotional ceremony, I do understand why there are still a lot of Britons who who look at that and say, okay, why is this family getting this thing, you know, when the rest of us are... are Struggling, yeah, struggling we, to put food on the table, yeah, why unable we, to <laughs> unable to pay the bills. Absolutely, I yeah. mean, Britain is in a cost of living crisis. We're, this country is not in a good way right now, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, we 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 saw some resistance to the coronation, to the scale of the coronation, to the expense. I mean, there was a, a very well organised um, protest that took place at Trafalgar Square. Um, we've come to protest the monarchy, especially King Charles. Um, we don't be- think he belongs in a democratic society, to be honest. And And I think actually the only real controversy and negative fallout in terms of all of the coverage of the weekend, which was, I would say, overwhelmingly a success, was, of course, the arrest of 52 protesters. Mm -hmm. And that has been very controversial in itself. We had a huge police operation. We had 11,500 police officers on our streets. Um, It was extraordinary. And there has been criticism over how they dealt with those Mm -hmm. protesters because this looked like a peaceful protest. Now, we understand that the arrests were made because the police were fearful that these protesters Mm -hmm. would have frightened the horses, which could have been absolutely disastrous and it would be incredibly dangerous. You know, one horse rearing up or slipping or, or being spooked could send the whole thing going like a, you know, like a pack of dominoes. So I understand they didn't want to take any risks, but there has been a lot of criticism that, you know, Britain, we are a free democratic society. Mm -hmm. Republic is the main uh, anti-monarchy pressure group. Really telling that the, the symbol or the slogan that Republic uses, not my king, 
is the one that they use. Because I think that when you have people who are able to say without facing consequences, this is not my king. Mm. One of the things that you realize in in how hesitant to even have a debate people have been for, you know, the better part of the late Queen's reign, nobody was making the case for why the monarchy is good. It was for a very long time that it was just assumed that it is such a part of national identity that it has to be good. There's a generation of people who haven't had this case affirmatively made for them. They didn't live through World War II. They weren't raised by World War II veterans and kind of have that national mythology in their heads. So they mm-hmm. have, it's just about making the case. There are, there are many people, and we know particularly within that 18 to 24 age category, who don't really understand why we have a hereditary monarch um, that we that hasn't been voted in. It's a it's a very alien concept, particularly to young people. So those are the people that Charles is going to have to really forge a connection with. And I think in many ways, actions will speak louder than words in terms of what he does. But, you know, are we going to see him open up more of Buckingham Palace to the public and turn it into something akin to a museum? Are we going to see more access to the other royal residences? Are we going to see him give back to the nation, just as he did with his wind farms, which are on the um, on the North Seabed, mm-hmm. the profits of that, which which technically do go back to the crown, he has given to the British public. So we've seen him take certain measures, but are there going to be more? Mm-hmm. And we can't do this sort of wrap-up episode of The Coronation without mentioning Penny Mordant and how the pen is mightier, dare we say, than the sword. Um, <laughs> or at she least was as really mighty. Kind of the, mighty as mighty well, as the sword absolutely. in this case. She could, she could definitely... Yeah. I read that she was doing push-ups in preparation for carrying that sword, which to me is uh, so impressive. Yeah. Building up those biceps. So Penny Morden is Lord President of the Council and she was responsible for bearing the Sword of State and presenting the jewelled Sword of Offering to the King. And Erin, by the way, that is the first time it's been carried and presented by a woman and what a sterling job she did. Probably unintentional, but one connection that I noticed, that beautiful turquoise dress that she wore with the cape over the shoulders was made by Sophia the brand that also made the uh, beautiful dress with a cape that Meghan Markle wore to uh, a, a service at Royal Albert Hall back in their last week of uh, their last week of engagements back in March 2020. So I was I just immediately looking at it. I was like, that cape looks familiar to me. And it turned out to be the it was a it was a <laughs> fabulous outfit, yeah. wasn't it? I mean, she really did look exceptional. And apparently the way she got through that was a good breakfast, sensible shoes, she said, and popping painkillers. Um, but uh, she, <laughs> oh, she definitely did Penny. emerge as the, as the surprise breakout star. That and along with Prime Minister Rishi Sunak reading the, you know, the, reading the epistle during the service. A reading from the epistle to the Colossians. I think that because my introduction to both of them as figures came so came last summer during the very contentious Tory leadership battle that it was nice to see them in just that different light. And I think that that speaks to why it's useful for the British government to participate in these, you know, issues. I think part of the downside, though, is, you know, after Penny Mordaunt goes viral, then you get many, many people online saying she should be our prime minister. And it's like, ah, you know, carrying a sword is a little different than being the prime minister, but okay. (laughs) 
I'll tell you what shocked me, actually, Erin, was the number of politicians um, given invitations to the Abbey, bearing in mind that, you know, the guest list was very much stripped of the peerage, the mm-hmm. lords and ladies, the earls and counts and countesses and baronesses and etc., etc., who essentially were largely behind putting the House of Windsor where it is today. Those families span centuries of loyalty to the crown. Mm-hmm. You know, we knew that they were being stripped out. We knew that this was a scaled-back coronation in terms of 2,000 or so invitations going out rather than the 8,000 to the Queen. Yes, I expected to see sort of international heads of state because that's the convening power of the monarchy and that it's soft power, that it does so brilliantly and better than any other politician. But I was surprised by the number of British politicians that were there. And of course, there is a lot of talk, isn't there, about how political, with a small p, our new king is going to be. And only recently we learned of a, a bit of a row, didn't we, Erin, between him and Boris Johnson over Rwanda. Tell us more about oh, that. Oh, yes. So this week, writing in the Daily Mail, one of the former 10 10- Downing, chief of communications, said that, you know, it had broken in the the news that Charles did not like a government plan of deportations. It got a lot of pushback in a lot of different corners. You know, Charles was not alone in, in, in apparently, if he did, like holding that opinion. But what uh, the former chief, communication chief for Johnson said is that Boris Johnson yelled at Charles for 15 minutes because he had Mm -hmm. criticized that plan. And I, Which is extraordinary. I, sorry, just to, just to interrupt you. He yelled at Charles for 15 minutes. You, you know... That is extraordinary. Chutzpah. That is bravery. <laughs> bravery or stupidity. Yeah. We have to wait and see. But, but I think, to me, that story really highlights the, the real danger that, you know, both the monarchy and the British government is finding themselves in at this point because... You know, Walter Batchat said in the 19th century that a monarch has the right to encourage, to advise, and to warn. But a commensurate part of that is that the government doesn't have to listen. And you you find yourself in these situations where they're carrying out actions in his name that he's not supposed to comment on. I think that this is what comes downstream of the UK facing political turmoil and having installed a new monarch is that that relationship is going to be is has been rocked and what that means over the next few years is is really up in the air but eventually you know i think it, that it seems that even just by the fact that we know about this you know Boris Johnson fight and that we know about the backroom discussions about whether or not Charles would attend cop the um climate change uh meeting last fall like, I think already we've moved into a new phase of the relationship between the palace and 10 Downing Street. And I think it's it's going hmm. to be very curious to see how that keeps going. Because I think, like, you know, you can count the number of times where such information got out about the Queen on, like, one hand. Yes, those meetings between the Queen and the Prime Minister were, were always kept um, absolutely off the record, although I think one or two have been known to to breach that rule in in memoirs for which they were paid very high advances. <laughs> <clears throat> David Cameron. However, it's got, I think you're right, Erin. It's going to be really, really interesting to watch, isn't it? I mean, as Prince of Wales, obviously he was able to flex more political muscle, although he still had to be careful even then. And I spoke to Robert Hazell when I was writing The New Royals, and he said when Charles is king, which he is obviously now, he's going to have to be very, very careful. It's going to be a very delicate balancing act. And I think that is going to be a challenge for a man who 
who we know does have strong opinions on on certain things and perhaps doesn't always think that our politicians get things right. So that relationship with him, those weekly audiences with Rishi Sunak um, are going to be very, very important. And, you know, on one hand, as the longest serving Prince of Wales in our history, he arguably has far more experience than any prime minister that's going to walk through um, the doors into that intimate palace meeting. And I think it's going to come down to getting that balance right. He said himself, he absolutely understands that as king, uh, his role in any intervention has to change. But I also think as king, he hasn't had a personality transplant. He still (laughs) cares about these issues and where he feels he can warn, encourage and advise, he's absolutely going to do that. Dynasty will be right back after a short break. I'm Chris Murphy. I'm Richard Lawson. And I'm Hilary Busis. We are from Vanity Fair's Still Watching Podcast. Next up, we're watching the new HBO show, The Regime. Madam Chancellor, let's keep the gloves on. This is not a confrontation. We're just saying what's true. Academy Award winner Kate Winslet is our chancellor as she leads a faux European autocracy in turmoil. We'll be watching week by week as the regime unravels. And we'll be talking to the stars along the way. New episodes of Still Watching will drop every Sunday after the regime airs. You know, what we're going to think about the reign of Charles has so much more to do with global forces and with politicians who he, you know, can only he can only advise, like we said. But I think that you can already see that when we've been talking about this, I think that we've been seeing so much more of that, like reintroducing Charles as an emotional figure, because I think now it really does kind of come down to whether or not people just kind of like like him as a figure. And I thought that there was no more fascinating time to look at that than the coronation concert, which was, you know, both a really, really well executed event. I talked to the planners who were talking about just like how difficult it was to design a stage in the back of uh, Windsor Castle in a place where people rarely get to go. Wherever you may live, but then I loved the all of the moments where we found out about Charles's love of squirrels, where, you know, Tom Cruise said pilot to pilot. I think that that was a, a I was honestly surprised by just how much it was both kind of using some of the things that have been said about him negatively in the past, like him talking to trees and, and pointing out how much of a positive that is to you know, Mm. people now in 2023. What did you think of the concert? Well, I thought the concert was wonderful. I mean, we all thought it was going to be a bit of a disappointment, I think, originally, because it didn't have the big headline acts like Elton John and Ed Sheeran. But actually, it really didn't matter because the concert was fantastic. It had that amazing drone show. Um, I I loved Lionel Richie. I thought he was great and he got everyone, you know, in the royal box up on their feet (laughs) and dancing. It seemed to, to tick every box, didn't it? Not just the concert, but the whole coronation weekend. Yeah, I mean, 
Lionel Richie and Katy Perry both are great examples. They, you know, came in, did two of their hits, but also mentioned the charities that they've worked for with Charles. And I think that there's a way in which having that, like, genuine emotional enthusiasm about being there for Charles was so much more impressive than, you know, any big name who just was there because they had been asked but didn't weren't, like, excited to be there. That came through really well. Erin, you talking very much about the sort of human and emotional side that we got to see of Charles over the coronation weekend. And I think you're absolutely right. You know, we we saw him very humbled, very solemn, very serious, as you would expect, of course, during the actual coronation ceremony. Um, but other than that, he just seemed to really enjoy this moment. And he certainly waited long enough. you've been working on what I know is going to be a really interesting article about Charles making his debut as King Charles III on the world stage. Talk us through that. A lot of people are feeling anxious about the role that Britain is playing in the world. You know, the idea that Britain is, is in decline is something that people started saying and arguing in Parliament in the middle of the 19th century. Like, Britain was at the height of its economic and military powers. People at the time were already saying, like, oh, no, like, we're, we're, we're slipping, we're falling off, like, what are we doing? And so thinking about military parades, you realize that this is one of the first times that Britain's had a huge military parade where there wasn't just, like, some threat to the empire, some threat to the nation that was really looming. And instead, I think it, the, that parade wasn't about projecting power. It was about honoring, you know, the the intricacies of the tradition of Britain and the way that those those things have survived. Anne is like such a perfect example of this. Like she's a very great equestrian. And so she makes sense like in that military role. What can we learn about what the country stands for? And I think that you learned a lot about tradition. You learned a lot about not being afraid to embrace some of the sillier sides of it. You know, the Charles's very purple outfit and all the different parts. And I think that that's something, I, I think that's something really fascinating that it, we saw on display there. And for something that was so so referential of the past, it's really pointed towards the future. This was an opportunity for Britain to show off what it does best. When you look to Britain to try and understand who we are as an island and and what defines us and, and what separates us from, from everyone else and makes us quite unique. And I think you only need to look at the ratings. The, the figures run into their millions of those who tuned in around the world. You know, the British monarchy is still compelling. It's still intriguing. And I think it is still a source of endless fascination for many people around the world. There are a lot of places, especially in Commonwealth countries, that I've heard a lot of people express that, like, the monarchy is necessarily, you know, connected to or symbolic of slavery. You know, like, it, even if there is a lot of, you know, I think that you can, as Charles has said that they that they're willing to do is like opening up the royal archives. There's a lot to be known and understood about the contours of that. And the question that I've been thinking about recently a lot is, you know, how is a coronation different than, say, statues of the Confederacy? We had a wave about 50 years after the Civil War where people were going around and just putting up statues of these losers. Like, literally, they lost the war. Um who represent white supremacy to scare African-Americans who lived nearby where the statues were. Like, the statues existed to scare people. I think that it's really clear to me, the more you learn about the history of the Windsors, 
that monarchy is something that's meant a lot of different things. And there are ways that it has been associated with those things. It's been associated with British military might, but it doesn't have to be that. But I think the real test is going to be like, can young people find a reason to like living in and being in Britain that isn't just symbolic? Like it's it's that's not going to be a very convincing argument to anybody so long as people are struggling and whether or not they feel like they fit in and how much they feel like they belong in the country. And I think when you look at the issues that Charles has long campaigned on, it bodes well for him because the things that he cares about the people he cares about are young people. And the things that he cares about are the issues that young people care about. It's protecting this planet. It's it's making sure that he leaves the planet better than when he found it. And, and that, I think, is going to be at the heart of the legacy of King Charles III. Erin, I've so enjoyed the last few weeks sort of dissecting the royals, their relationships, the coronation, and really sort of looking to what the future holds. And I'm sure we're going to have many more discussions to come over the coming weeks and months. Yeah, this coronation weekend was really just the beginning. And it's good that we're going to continue bringing you the latest news on King Charles III and the rest of the royal family right here. So please stay tuned to this feed. And if you liked what you heard in this podcast, please leave a review in Apple Podcasts. This has been special coverage from Vanity Fair's Dynasty. I'm Katie Nichol. And I'm Erin Vanderhoof. Dynasty is produced by Vanity Fair and Condé Nast Entertainment. This episode was produced by Will Coley. Stephen Valentino is our executive producer. We had engineering assistance from Gabe Carova and Bob Mallory. The theme song was composed by Wooly Music. Dynasty was conceived by Vanity Fair executive editor Claire Howarth. Claire and Katie Rich are staff editorial consultants. We also want to thank everyone who shared with us their thoughts on the coronation and the royal family. In this episode, we included the voices of Emily Goodwin, Andrew Gerritzo, Elizabeth Rankin, Barbara Ivory, Pamela Simon, Melissa Litsky, Mike Pello, and Christina Honthi. You can listen to all the previous episodes of Dynasty wherever you get your podcasts and also online at vf.com forward slash dynasty. Thanks so much for listening. God save our king. The thing that makes this so special for me is the thought that children in the future will be learning this date in school history lessons, and I will have been a very small part in that moment in our little island's history. Over here, Megan is adored, so we would love to see this fairy tale story play out, see everybody get a little bit of what they want, and see Charles become a better king than maybe his mom ever expected. Thanks for all that you guys do, and I've enjoyed listening. Bye. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker and host of The New Yorker Fiction Podcast. On the podcast, I ask a great contemporary writer to select a favorite story from the magazine's almost 100-year archive to read and discuss. Together, we delve into the story, exploring its themes, its style, and what makes fiction work. You can listen to authors like Otessa Moshveg talk about why we write. Story, or attaching a story or creating a story, is this inclination that we all have to stop spinning. And you can hear writers like George Saunders discuss the nature of storytelling. 
on the first read, you accept these things as descriptions and they make you see the scene, but every line is a chance to inflect the reader's mind. You'll discover new favorite authors and read old favorites in new ways. Episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast are released on the first of every month. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts.